Can you see that full moon out there? If you're in the U.S., the U.K., or Europe, it's a full harvest moon. Shine on, shine on, harvest moon up in the sky. But it's morning here. It's Friday morning here. The moon is waning. It is the 28th. No, it's episode 28. Silly. Read your own notes. It is the 2nd of October. It might be the 1st of October where you are, but it's the 2nd of October here in picturesque Bayside, Melbourne, Australia, episode 28 of The Way It Is, official Bobby Galinsky podcast. And um, this is the, it's the lie cast. It's not just the podcast, it's the lie cast. We had Yom Kippur last week, the um, holiest of holy, high holy Jewish days. Kind of like Easter for the Goyim and um, I suppose Ramadan for terrorists or whatever like that. But it is where we kind of confess, we repent one day. It's a one day thing. And it's just kind of like, hey, God, I did this on, you know, Tuesday, the 2nd of July. God goes, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. You go, well, I won't do it again. I'm going to live a better life. I'm going to live a much better life. Except we say it with empathy and absolute conviction because we just, we save it for one year. Well, um, and I swore, I didn't swear, but when my conversation with God over a uh, chorizo sausage roll and onions, which is a uniquely type of kosher fasting Yom Kippur uh, experience, which many Orthodox Jews really will never, ever experience. They think that they get actually clear from the fast, the sundown to sundown fast, and it helps them connect with God. Well, I connected with God over that chorizo sandwich. Let me tell you, we we took that Don's chorizo, which I've talked about before, buy it at Kohl's grocery store, but it's so amazing. And you just cook it and cook it and cook it. It gets absolutely caramelized on the outside, criminalized, and put it in a beautiful, long, soft roll of sesame seeds, lots of American mustard, not, you know, not seeded mustard, not English mustard, no, American mustard, like French's or something like that, or even Master Foods, if that's what you got to suffer through, and onions that have been cooking for a half an hour, caramelized, criminalized onions. Oh my God, it was so good. So anyway, I was talking to God, as I do, and, uh, and as he talks to me from time to time, he, and I said, okay, here's my repent, here's my admission, here's my clarity. I've lied a lot on the podcast. And, well, maybe expanded, you know, a few things like that. I've been I've been caught out with wrong dates and stuff on Today in History and, and stuff like that. But most importantly, actually, I've never lied on the podcast. I made just a, made a mistake or two. I lied that I wasn't going to talk about the U.S. election until the week of the election. I lied because... Wednesday morning here, which was Tuesday night in the U.S., the first of the three debates between President of the United States, Donald Trump, 
and early stages of dementia, Joe Biden took place. Now I'm going to talk about that later in the show, but uh, boy, am I going to talk about that later in the show. So that was my lie. Sorry, things changed. Things changed. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to appoint uh, some Supreme Court appointee during my term. I'm going to talk about the election before before the election. So I know I've been waffling for five minutes to get to that, but that's that full moon. I love full moons. And let me tell you, let me tell you, Mars is in Aries until early January. So it's like flashpoint. It's a flashpoint, especially for like family arguments. So, you know, if your wife or husband, father, son, sister, brother, grandfather, daughter, nephew, niece, or something like that, it's just just irking you at the dinner table or whatever, just say, shut up, shut up, shut up. Because it's going to be a very tense time till January. Just deal with it. Be nice. Be nice. Now, we've got a big show. I said last week we're going to have a big show. We have a big announcement at the end of the show, too. Got an amazing, wondrous interview with a fantastic Hollywood star, a Hollywood star who is a conservative, very talented star, star of daytime TV, star of movies, amazing guy, just an absolute mensch. And uh, we're going to have that on next Friday. I'm going to tell you who it is at the end of the show. I'm going to do this like 60 minutes. It's kind of bait. You're going to have to listen to the end of the show to know who it is. And it's uh, someone who suffered actually being blacklisted by Hollywood since coming out as a conservative. Yes, you can come out as a conservative. You can come out as anything. But it used to be if you came out as gay, you know, it would hurt your career. Now, your career is embraced. If you come out as a conservative, your career is finished in Hollywood. But this guy has got other plans. And um, we're still in lockdown, you know. Uncle Dan has taken away the curfew, but still no tennis, still no golf, anything like that. And uh, I'm not going to break that lie. I'm not going to unload on him like a 12-gauge on, you know, a rabid dog with Atticus Finch at the trigger. I am just giving out love and light and peace. But uh, Uncle Dan did say the virus was evil. And silent, and I didn't know it was silent. I thought I, I thought it talked like that. I thought, do you want to have some takeaway? You want to hot down chicken corn soup? Because it's a Chinese virus, Chinese virus. And I know I have Asian listeners, so I'm not culturally appropriating. I'm simply talking the way one COVID talks to another when they uh, when they transmit in in close close quarters when they. Uh, kind of grab from someone's breath to someone else who's not wearing a mask and go, oh, it's nice in here. It's nice in here. I think I will infect you. So, um, you know, they didn't know whales and dolphins talked for many years until uh, Jacques Cousteau was able to record them. So we'll be recording actual COVIDian virus-to-virus conversations using our special electron hadron collider microscopic voice recorder. And uh, I do, I do speak COVID, as you know. Now, what's happening this week? Well, let's run you through it. I'm going to talk a bit about how politics takes up so much wasted time. Dining, 
a thing called the extinction burst. I didn't know what an extinction burst is, but thanks to the amazing Dan Bongino, I know what an extinction burst is. <laughs> You're going to freak out because we all have done one. We're going to talk about Mideast peace deals. We're going to talk about the coolest pair of shorts you will ever see. But the only way you're going to see them is to go into the show notes, which are at thewayitis.blueberry, which is B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, thewayitis.blueberry.com. And uh, subscribe if you haven't always subscribed. You can leave a great review. You can leave a bad review, but I'll delete it. And, uh, you know, rate the show, look at the show notes, um, see cool pictures and and see amazing things. going to be talking about the beauty of analog things like voice and pictures, actual pictures, not digital pictures. I had an amazing discovery this week that really moved me. Um, discovering a video of my parents and being able to capture it and, and hearing their voices. I haven't heard their voices in many, many years, and it um, really affected me. We'll be talking about the most unlikely movie that you're going to love. I don't know how you cannot love it. Starring someone in their very, very first role, breakout starring role, an octopus. And uh, we're going to go into the tsunami of hotel closures that's been happening in major cities that's really fallen under the radar, but... uh, is like a huge warning sign of what's going on with this pandemic that no one has really forecast. And talking about some TV that we love, some movies that we love, and a couple of surprises. And some amazing, let me tell you. Let me tell you. We're not going fancy. We're going analog. This is the analog week. We're going to old school, old school presidential debates, old school cocktails, old school clothing, and old school cooking and baking. Yep, it's all happening here. My uh, my feminine side is, is coming out. But so many, so many great chefs are men and women. It's not really a male thing or a female thing anymore. In fact, you know, I heard someone say, It uh, really wouldn't be right on the U.S. Supreme Court until all nine justices were women. And I don't see anything wrong with that because all nine justices used to be men. I don't have a problem with that. You know, well, I do. That was my other lie. Big lie. Woo! Oh, Bobby, don't lie. Don't lie to the friends. Don't you lie. Don't you lie. I'll sick the dogs on you. Get down. Get down. Nine female justices. Wow. What a parallel universe that would be. Oh, what would history be like? died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. My firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, I'll tell you what's happened today in history. And unlike last week, where really fuck all happened today in history, 
for thousands of years has been huge. And we're going to start, you guessed it, in 1263, one of my favorite years, when on this day the Battle of Largs was fought between Norwegians and Scots. The Battle of Largs. What the fuck was that? In 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but on this day in 1492, King Henry VII, Henry VII, no, Henry VIII of England, invaded France. In 1614, an otherwise bleak year, French King Louis XIII was declared an adult at 13. Wow, Prince Andrew would have liked that because Prince Andrew is pretty clear that anybody above 13 is an adult. 1835, the Battle of Gonzales fought between Texas settlers and Mexican forces. My friend Jim Sattery in Texas would know that. This was actually a precursor to the Alamo, the first engagement of the Texas Revolution. And my fellow Texan friends, Tobe and Vaughn. Von Brock and Tobe. Hi, guys. Hope you're well. In 1851, listen closely. I'm only going to say this once. In 1851, on this day, the Pasilalinic Sympathetic Compass which is a contraption built to test the pseudoscientific hypothesis that snails create a permanent telepathic link when they mate, is demonstrated but proves to be fake. Fake news. 1866. J. Oosterhout patents a tin can with a key opener. Well, how good is that? <laughs> they ever open tin cans on Amazing. 1870. Italy, and you know I love my Italian. Italy annexes the Rome and Papal States. Rome has made the Italian capital. And that ended a centuries, centuries-long dispute um, that the Italians and Greeks had, um, which has been well documented, on really who invented sex. Where, where, did, where did sex come from? The Greeks claimed it and the Italians claimed it. Well, that was definitively decided that day. The Greeks did invent sex, but the Italians brought women into the equation. On 1935, on this day, Mussolini's Italian army, there go those Italians, attacked the Abyssinians, the Ethiopians. Now, even though Italy was our enemy, was part of the axis of evil, Italy's such a wonderful country and we forgive them, Great clothes, great cars, great food, everything. Wonderful people. There's nothing I don't like about Italy. But you got to think, Mussolini, he went into Ethiopia with tanks and shit. And these fucking Ethiopians were on, like, horses and camels. And he called that a big victory. I'd love some video from that. Anyway, 1936, on this day, 1936, radio was used for the first time for a presidential campaign. Wow, that would have been heavy. 1941 on this day, yes, lots happened, folks, lots to get through, centuries. Six Paris synagogues were bombed by the Gestapo. Have you noticed that every week, no matter what in history, the Jews are bombed or eliminated or annihilated or whatever by somebody? But do we worry about it? Are we victims? No. Do we have shirts that say Jew lives matter? No. So you know what? I am not into any victim mentality. I don't care your color your race, your gender, how many chromosomes you have, 
do not pull victim in this podcast. Do not pull victim. There is no safe space, okay? 1941. The Germans, big mistake, huge mistake, launched attack on Moscow. Jeez, I wonder how that's going to come out. And now we get a bit jovial because in 1950, the first strip of Charlie Brown, later called Peanuts, became published. What a wonderful, wonderful comic strip. I'm not in the comic strip so much, but that's a good one. 1954, bad day, but a great day. Willie Mays, famous over-the-shoulder catch of Vic Wirtz's 460-foot drive during Game 1 of the World Series. One of the greatest catches of all times, but didn't like that outcome. 1971, down here in Australia, down under. Australia was really, really pulling out the stops because a homing pigeon a homing pigeon averaged a record 133 kilometers per hour in an 1,100-kilometer race in Australia. It's massive. It's massive. 1982, one of the best days ever in Chicago, where at least a dozen people die every day for something. Cyanide-laced Tylenol capsules kill seven in Chicago. That's when it all started. Do you know how much I fucking hate it? If I've got a headache and I'm trying to open Tylenol, have you ever tried the open, open Tylenol when you have a headache or acetaminophen or ibuprofen or anything with all these safety caps because some stupid baby somewhere got poisoned by a Tylenol capsule in 1982? Talk about crushing a, an acorn with a sledgehammer. It's like, you know, it's like lockdown in Victoria, crushing a chestnut or an acorn with a sledgehammer, bit of overkill. 1994, the first phase of the O.J. Simpson murder trial selection ended. 304 people were chosen and part of that selection committee. Whoa, Kamala Harris or Kamala, whichever you want to say it, who was part of Eddie Cochran's dream team that was convinced and purported that O.J. was innocent. The most guilty motherfucker, obviously of all time, but no, he got off. Thanks, Kamala. And the only reason he got off is they didn't want to have riots in L.A. Talk about capitulating to the mob. Anyway, a couple of big birthdays couple of nice Librans. Now let's talk about a bad Libran. A bad Libran is like Jimmy Carter, one of the 10 worst presidents ever. Absolutely indecisive, clumsy, nong. But we had Richard III, King of England, who was born in Fotheringham Castle, Northamptonshire, England, in 1483, on this day. And in 1869, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, Mahatma fucking Gandhi, Indian independence activist, spiritual leader, you know, absolute mentor for bald people and uh, those that like to wear bedsheets, born in Port Bander, Kathiawar Agency, British India. So there you go. And that is Today in History. 
and the soothing sounds of the theremin bring us into science, bitches. And today on Science Bitches, we're going to be talking about the extinction burst. This is actually something that I just learned the other day, and it was actually listening, actually, 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 actually listening to the amazing Dan Bongino, who uh, I've uh, thanked before, who has a beautiful podcast, a beautiful, beautiful podcast. Um, he used to be a Secret Service agent for um, a couple of presidents, uh, Carter and and Bush Sr., and worked in the Obama administration as a Secret Service, then a policeman before that, ran for the Senate, didn't, didn't get there, and uh, is just a pretty legend guy. And he was speaking about the extinction burst. And to uh, paraphrase an anecdote, from it, the extinction burst, part of science, is the misconception that if you stop engaging in a bad habit, that the habit will gradually diminish until it disappears from your life completely. Operative word, completely. And the truth is that any time you quit something cold turkey, your brain will make a last-ditch effort to return you to your old ways. And this is also backed up by David McRaney on You Are Not So Smart magazine. Now, you know you've been there. You know you've been there. You've been serious about losing weight or trying to mind every calorie. I know I have. And you read labels, work out the math for a serving size, stock up on fruit and vegetables, learn how to properly cut onions and bell peppers, hit the gym and get an app to track your progress. Everything's going fine. You feel great. You feel like a fucking champion. You think, oh, this is easy, bitches. Then, one day, one rainy, dark, horrific day, you give in to temptation and eat a piece of chocolate or cake donut or a bag of chips. Maybe you go further, grab beer, a cheeseburger. Perhaps you're out to lunch and say, fuck it, what the hell, and order the fettuccine Alfredo, and dessert. And then to celebrate the, the binge, you figure, well, what the hell? I'll have a pint of ice cream and a whole pizza. And the diet ends in a catastrophic binge. And amongst the ruins, you look at the empty containers, knowing what was once in them is now in you. And you ask, how did this happen? How did this happen? Well, you've just experienced an extinction burst. It's predictable and common blast of defiance from the recesses of a brain denied familiar rewards. It's also a complete repetitive reaction of something you know will not work. And to uh, use an example that uh, Mr. Bongino worked, you, uh, you know, what if you rigged a Coke machine, soda machine, so that every ninth transaction, you know, you put the and if you're in the States, you put the quarters in or the, the, the pound coin in the UK or the, you know, the, the dollar or two dollar coins here in Australia. And every ninth time the machine jams, it's on, it's rigged to do that. Well, we've all been there. You know, the machine jams. First thing you do is you kick the machine. You smash the machine. You whack it. Just bam, fucking piece of shit. And you know in your brain that this isn't going to work. Talking to the machine won't work. Hitting it won't work. It's like if the mouse jams on the computer, throwing it against the wall, smashing it like a child, doesn't work. But that's that hard-wired organism of behavior conditioning. It's like, say you want some chicken nuggets. 
I want some chicken nuggets right now, but you know, you just can't snap your fingers and wait for them to appear. If I could, oh, I'd be more than a demigod. You, but you've got to engage in a long sequence of actions. You've got to walk to the closet. You've got to put on your shirt or dress. Find shoes, apply to feet. Find keys, find car. Drive to Nugget, supplier. Use language, exchange money, etc., etc. This long string of behaviors could be sliced up into smaller and smaller components if we really wanted to dig down into the conditioning you have endured in order to be able to get those piping hot nuggets in your mouth. Just driving the car from A to B is a complex performance with thousands of steps, all of which become automatic after hundreds of hours of practice, which segues me in slipperily and ham-handedly at the same time sequentially into the presidential debates a few days ago on Wednesday. Talk about extinction burst on both parties and especially the news. The first time they hear anything they don't like, fake news, fake news, fake news, fake news, fake news. All Joe Biden does is regurgitate fake stories made up by the left-wing media and try to purport them as truth. Trump dissing troops, fake. Trump doing this, fake. Trump doing this, fake. Of course, Biden putting his son into a post with no experience. Substantiated. Biden's son receiving a $3.5 million wire from the mayor of Moscow's wife. Substantiated. But they all both deny it was just an absolute punching fest over the top of each other. And um, I was really geared up for it. I know I wasn't going to talk about it till the election, but I've already admonished myself and given up the lie factor, the lie cast, and said, I have to talk about this. Because if you're looking at it for two hours, one, entertainment factor, high. Uh, I thought the president, and we know that uh, I'm a bit biased, more than a bit biased, thought the president came out punching and punching. To my surprise, Joe Biden, who is definitely without question, in the early stages of faculty cognitive loss, um, or you could just call it, you could, if, if you even want to discredit it, just say, too old, the most difficult, challenging, nigh impossible, most important job in the entire universe, President of the United States. He, he's too old. He, he doesn't have it. He doesn't have it together. And if he's battling to keep it together, as you could see, for two hours, how can he, how can he pull it together and make decisions that could, you know, blow up the universe? I'll leave that at that. Um, President Trump, to his discredit, he kept interrupting Joe when he should just let Joe go make a puddle of himself. But the um, the unseen factor was that uh, Biden came in third, in my opinion, behind Trump. And Chris Wallace. And Chris Wallace was feeding Biden questions and uh, not letting Trump interrupt as much as Biden interrupt. That's my take on it. Now, you might think different. I thought Chris Wallace was relatively even-handed, the moderator, compared to how he has been in the past. But I don't know how he's on Fox News. He definitely, uh, shall we say, was not completely neutral. But uh, it was very engaging. I don't think there was any knockout punches there. Um, I think Biden surprised. I think Trump surprised. 
and neither would uh, land the knockout punch. And I think the the telling things is that um, President Trump uh, threw way too much heat, which gets in a way of the light, so to speak, to quote Governor Chris Christie, who is a debate coach for President Trump, that uh, the aggressiveness was fantastic early on, but then it veered away into just aggressiveness and not into his many accomplishments, which I think he'll sort out in the second debate. And Joe Biden um, kept saying he had a solution, he had a solution, he had a solution, but he didn't have any solutions and, and wouldn't be pinned down on his absolute allegiance to the left and Marxism and socialism and the Sanders people in stacking the Supreme Court and eliminating the filibuster. Um, I was quite excited. I was quite geared up. I thought Trump did much better than he did against Hillary in the first debate four years ago, but also um, my associate in the room made a comment that it was much easier to see two men doing that than a man and a woman, which can be look quite misogynistic and bullying, even though it's uh, all fair and love and war in politics. But um, the one thing I don't think that uh, Biden got is you don't elect the president for three years. The president's there for four years. So picking a Supreme Court judge, that just doesn't stop after three years. You don't stop the football game after three quarters and say, well, the fourth quarter doesn't match. That's uh, doesn't count. That's, you know, campaigning for the next game. Um, he's got every right up to the last day of his of his term to do that. So um, quid pro quo. Now, one thing that just did shock me is how how bad a state the U.S. is with its voting system in different states. Um, I'm a proud American, proud dual citizen. But um, my wife said, geez, can you imagine if we were arguing that in Australia, how the vote and, and the veracity of voting and the technical skills and faux pas of voting? You know, it's like no one's even sure that the ballots count. Each state is different. When will they come in? Will they be fake? Will there be duplicates? Will thousands be thrown? It's just such a mess. It's amazing that the most sophisticated country in the world, the U.S., hands down, can't get a voting system correct. But if they had a unified voting card and everyone had to register and it was a unified ID card, which the Democrats don't want, that would simplify things. And we'll talk about that another time. That was just enough to bring us to the next debate. I don't think anybody really made up their minds from this debate, any of the people who are undecideds, and that's the only thing that counts. And uh, just flipping on the net and looking at Variety and The Hollywood Reporter and CNN. um, Why didn't Saudis fly a plane into CNN? New York Times and, uh, you know, all the far-left news. And then, of course, Fox News and some of the right wing. It's just all extinction reflex, extinction burst. It's, it's, do you let the child cry or do you give him his toy and stop his crying? It's really a sad state of affairs. Anyway, we'll see what happens in the next few weeks. And that was science, bitches. I think I'd really like to have a much better you know, roll out sound for science pitches. I'd like to use the uh, Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad lines, but um, for copyright reasons, those I just haven't been able to snatch yet, and I just don't want to use them without permission. I'm not that kind of guy. 
Well, I usually am, you know. It's easy to get forgiveness and permission, but not in this case. Not when the podcast is growing, growing like COVID throughout the community. Now, I got to share something out of the blue that uh, I wasn't going to talk about, but I am because it so affected me this week. And the first thing is a book that I'm going to implore you to read, and it's called Sing Backwards and Weep. And it is by Mark Lanigan. Now, if you're a rock god, you know who Mark Lanigan was. Mark Lanigan was the amazing lead singer and frontman of the Screaming Trees, a Seattle-based band that in the mid-'80s was absolutely astonishing and one of the most talented singers, songwriters, front, front men ever. And like many people in the rock and roll world, there has been a lot of tragedy, drugs, addiction, homelessness, petty crime, deaths of close friends, um, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and everything else in his life. And that would have made it a very typical, mundane, run-of-the-mill book. But this guy speaks with such painful, painful honesty and pathos that it's, you know, about a guy who watched his dreams just absolutely catch fire and incinerate the ground beneath his feet. And the the book is a must read. I, I saw a review of it in the, I think it was The Age, but a couple months ago, and uh, my good friend Cliff Posner, the original Grumpy Swimmer of the Grumpy Swimmer bookstore in Elwood, got it for me. And um, it's a memoir, and it will make you it will make you feel, even if you're not a rock and roll fan, because it's just about a journey, one man's incredible journey incredible journey and i uh if you're looking for something to read over the christmas holidays or just something uh, i love biographies and i love biographies of successful people and i love biographies of tragedy and this this is such a melange of both and so beautifully written the guy has such a way with words and um it's it's just a must it's just a must and you can always order books online wherever you are in the world but if you are in melbourne Get in your car and go to Elwood on Ormond Road and get it from Cliff Posner at The Grumpy Swimmer. Or just email them or, you know, they're online. Or call them and you can do the click and collect. Because in Melbourne, you know, you can't go more than 5K. So if you're out of 5Ks, I'm sure he'll ship it to you. Or, you know, forget the law. Forget the stupid 5K law. Just drive there and, you know, make up a story and... uh Say that I said it's okay. They, the, the police say, what are you doing? You're more than five Ks away. I said, Bobby said it's okay. And they'll go, oh, the way it is? All right. You'll get a pass. But uh, Or you can wait until after lockdown. But I highly recommend that store. And there is no commercial consideration here. He's just a mensch and a great guy. And his whole team, um, you know, his family there is astonishing. Now, getting off into books, into more analog things, I was rummaging, as I said, through uh, videos and things. And I've, I've got a bunch of video cassettes, VHS cassettes, and little mini DVDs, and or mini DVs as they are, and stuff like that. And just going through things, and I found an old set of videos, and just kind of flipped it on, 
and I wasn't watching. I just was rummaging around in the office here, in the uh, in the bunker, and I heard my mom and dad's voice. And I haven't heard their voice. I haven't heard my dad's voice in seven years. I haven't heard my mom's voice in five years since they passed away, respectively. And I cannot tell you the shivers I got um, because I didn't expect them to be on the video. It was them together um, many, many years ago when I first got the video camera and just videoing them when they were showing their new apartment in Florida. And I just whipped around. And if, for that brief moment, a couple of seconds there, I, I thought they were alive. I thought they were right here. And for all practical purposes, they were because my brain couldn't separate. As I talked about in earlier episodes, we, we can go into the past. When we look up to the left and think about something that happened in the past, we're traveling in time. When we project into something that we really want to happen or know is going to happen or wish to happen, we're projecting to the future. It's time travel either way. It's the same process. It's the same physics. Uh, although a lot of people tend to poo-poo the idea of forward time travel, but it is no different than past time travel because it all is in the same universe. It's all in the same seamless timeline. It's just where we grasp ourselves in the timeline. But I was suddenly transported right back there. But in the present day, I knew I was in my office. I knew it was, you know, September 2020. But yet, and I knew my folks were long deceased, but they were right here in the office. And the voices and the sounds and seeing familiar furniture and things, it... Uh, it just froze me. I was absolutely exhilarated and annihilated at the, at the same time. It was very, very powerful. And I've made a vow to myself to get a lot of these videos organized and transferred to DVD, which is pretty easy to do these days, and, and accessible, accessible things because... My kids, my son, who uh, uh, remains Steve, and perhaps his kids if he ever has kids. Um, and if he doesn't, who knows? Uh, my late son's children, grandchildren. Um, who will pass on some of these things? Who will even know what their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents really looked like and sounded like? We've, we've got all these millions of iPhone pictures and things like that, but, and, you know, no one looks at the films on the camera or on the phone and stuff anymore. But to be able to have something accessible, much like home movies when, when I was a kid or, you know, the proverbial slideshow, which was still only stills. But to really to grab that analog feeling in a digital world today, and it's like being able to spend time with my parents, you know, your grandparents, things that happened. It's, it's essential that we grasp and preserve and honor memories instead of collecting billions and billions and billions in a digital library that may never be passed on when we're gone or someone might not even know what to do with or someone, more importantly, might not even have access to after we're dead. That's kind of that gray area that um, I would like to talk about at some point about really what happens to all of our digital life when we're gone. If my wife and I were, uh, you know, 
in a fire and died tonight. You know, who has the passwords to get into everything and look at photos and stuff like that. Um, Romanian hackers, yes, I know. But, uh, and Peter Stroke and Lisa Page and the rest of the FBI. But in all sincerity, you know, the the only things that we have that we know are our parents and as parents and really grasp who they were and how they functioned in their old their own world were these were these videos and things and the past lets us do that through silverware or secretaries or knickknacks that only tell their story once you blow off the dust as Ty Burr once said and through those mediums analog or digital that lets us hold our loved ones in the snow globe of memory so use those now or lose the stories forever. And you know what that music means. Yes, it's the Fox song. What the Fox's that? It means it's movie time. Yeah, it's movie time. Anyway, we're going to talk about a movie that's been out for a while on Netflix, and a lot of you have seen, and it's just being lauded all over the world. But a lot of you really don't know a lot of the story behind it, and uh, it is a pretty amazing film called My Octopus Teacher. Now, I know, what a dumbass title. When um, my wife found out about it on social media from someone that she really admires in the States who just was absolutely gobsmacked over it, um, says, we got to watch this. And I hadn't heard of it, and I've heard of just about everything, as you know. I like to think that I'm the cinema Nostradamus or the cinema Wikipedia in some ways, but yet the more I know, the less I know. But my octopus teacher, I thought, is this Mel Gibson's ex-wife, Octomom? Did she she become a student teacher? Um, What is this about? And I thought, all right, we'll give it the 10-minute ticker. One, because it came highly recommended. Two, because I love my wife's recommendations. And three, because it was about the sea world and things in this ocean. And I just love anything to do with animals and things like that. Well... This film came out of the blue, and uh, I'll let you just let it wash over you. But really, it is about a guy in South Africa, a filmmaker who uh, named Craig Foster that no one had ever heard of before, who fortuitously lived on the edge of a beach in Cape Town near a place called Camps Bay, And um, he turned a lifelong passion for snorkeling in the kelp forest near his home into a relationship with an octopus. Now, this film took 10 years to put together from Go the Woe. The underwater footage is to die for. The fact that there is such a thing as a kelp forest, I know. It's like this massive avatar forest that's underwater where all these rocks and bay and stuff is in, in South Africa can't believe it. It's in South Africa. You can't park your car on the yard on the grass and you can't have any biltong 
and friends, Hilda Hilton and Selwyn and all your South African friends. We do have some South African listeners who aren't in Robben Island prison. And um, so I know they'll, they'll think, oh, I didn't know Bobby was South African. But getting back to my octopus teacher, it, uh, it's literally the story of a Cape Tonian filmmaker and freediver who needed the break from his busy schedule that was taking its toll. And uh, boom, I really don't want to spoil everything that's happened. And some amazing, amazing news from Biz News from Linda Van Tilburg, who provided some of the background for the story. But the film was backed by the Sea Change Project, which is a non-governmental organization, NGO, that wants to create awareness of the great African sea forest. And um, this film really covers a lot of anthropomorphism issues when, for instance, how many of you have a Labrador puppy? Raise your paws. Okay. My wife loves rabbit. My wife loves rabbit dogs. My life, she might. She loves Labradors. And who doesn't like a lab? Because they, you know, they've got that eyeliner on and that, you know, great you know, lipstick, and they're always smiling. Have you ever seen an unhappy Labrador? Fuck no. And I think, of course, we anthropomorphize animals that when they're smiling, or we think they're smiling, or like dolphins that seem to appear to smile because of the upturned curvature of the mouth, we think they're smiling. And of course, we like them as opposed to scary ass, you know, fucking, you know, killer death, rabid, you know, monkeys in, you know, killer old world monkeys like mandrels and stuff like that that have scary faces and you know things like that not too many people anthropomorphize with mandrels and things like that or snakes although i do like snakes i was born in the year of the snake 1953 and um, i love snakes and they smile for me they just smile and the whole world smiles with them and me but this guy in diving discovers an octopus hence the title, My Octopus Teacher. And I guess to say falls in love with this octopus would be accurate. Now, I don't mean that in a sexualized way or in a way that would be completely inaccurate or untoward or improbable, but the affinity that he has for it, the attraction, and further in the film, the reciprocation on a more than sophisticated animal level is to put the viewer in awe. And it's suitable for children, some scary parts in there with sharks and stuff like that, but nothing nothing worse than CNN at uh, 6 p.m. with you know Don Lemon. But um, it is a family film, but it is a film that adults can relate to and have hope for creatures and love and sophistication and what the animal world is capable of. There is the fine line of, is this what I think it is, or am I attaching a meaning to it that is only my meaning? And I'll leave the viewer to discern that. But this project took almost 10 years. It took tons of filming and editing. And when they first approached Netflix with it some time ago, Netflix said, what is it? Um, sea diver, depressed, takes break, falls in love with octopus. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. You know, take that film. And only one person bothered to have a look at it. And she fell in love with the footage and then took it 
back up to the top of Netflix and go, I swear to Jesus, baby Jesus, you have got to take this film. We have got to have this film. It's amazing. And then, of course, got on board with it, and it's a massive worldwide hit. hit. No one will say how much it costs. I'm suspecting this thing came in at about the somewhere, somewhere at about the 12 to 15 million dollar range. But I'm speculating just on what I know and what I know I don't know. But it's been a very tightly guarded secret about what the budget budget was. But the um, response is astonishing. The sound and visuals astonishing. And Craig Foster, um, when he was interviewed. Um, you know, the short span, the short lifespan of the opt- octopus was one of the major elements of the film, which brought out so many strong emotions. And Foster said that was really oddly to their advantage. Most animals that have long lives are in tremendous danger because of that. And it's these animals that actually can live short and breed quickly and fast that have more of a chance in this terrifying world of today. They can turn around their numbers quickly whereas animals like the big predators are much more vulnerable because they take forever to grow to maturity. And he said he never expected to form such a strong bond with the octopus that he filmed over a year, and he didn't know how she felt towards him. But, quote, the octopus is the most intelligent invertebrate on the planet. It's from way back in evolution. And the split between octopus and humans... The split between octopus and humans is very, very far back. So she's got a totally different type of intelligence to a mammal, completely different way of thinking. So two-thirds of her cognition are outside her brain. I felt towards her, and she's this incredible teacher, and I, quote, love her very much, but the other way around is hard to quantify because her intelligence is maybe as much as a cat or a dog but it's a radically different type of intelligence that I don't think we fully understand yet. And I don't want to spoil the rest of the film, but the thing that just amazed me is how much of this that they're, they're keeping secret. He, he was underwater so long and, you know, just, you know, you start thinking, my God, how can this guy, you know, how can this guy be underwater so long? And how do they do all this? Or how many takes that they they do? So one of the questions that he was asked is, you know, how long could he hold his breath? And Craig said, well, I'm very reluctant to say. It's a funny thing. Under perfect circumstances, I can hold my breath for a very, very, very long time. But if I tell you how long, then it goes out and it could give the wrong message. So, I mean, it depends on so many things. If it's very rough and you're working hard, you can hold your breath for a very, very short time. If you're very, very relaxed and there's some incredible animal behavior guide going for an extremely long, long time, but I tend not to measure that. I'm not measuring how long I can hold my breath, but it's certainly good enough for diving and long takes in this environment. So it's a real enigma on how this episode in this adventure suddenly comes onto this octopus and what it teaches him about his own life. Does it teach him, you know, figuratively or ephemerally, or does it just trigger things in him to teach himself? It's almost like a therapist going to an underwater therapist for a year and over 10 years of development, things like that. Um, I'll let you judge for yourself, but you have to look at this film from, for me, it was how the sea life cured this 
individuals' challenges and perhaps what we can do for sea life in return without being, you know, an environmentalist hack or psychopath. It's it's a must-see. So put it on the biggest screen you can, order some uh, fried calamari and enjoy. It'll be the last time you ever eat it. I told you it was an old school podcast this week. So here you go. Pineapple upside down cake. That's it. That's it. We had to make a pineapple upside down cake. So this is not a like a pear charlotte or millefeu or you know a cabochon or a uh, you know very very French magical thing. We just wanted some good old school comfort food. And my wife's pineapple, I mentioned my wife a lot this podcast because um, she is a contributor to many of the uh, things that come on and the fact that it is suitable for families, um, some families, or at least the families that count, the ones that are listening. Um, her recipe for pineapple upside down cake is the goodness, is the goodness. And um, I just got to tell you, nothing fancy. That's it. I'm not even going to put the recipe in. I'm just going to put a couple of pictures in, and and you can wish that you could taste it. But um, we've got uh, a new cake dome coming. And when that cake dome shows, we're going to fill it with a pretty serious cake. But I didn't want you to think that we had abandoned our elite cooking skills this week. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! And while I've gone a bit mundane with the baking and non-baking the past couple of weeks, I have not gone down to the middle-of-the-road vanilla slice with clothing this week. And I'm not just talking about fashion, what are you wearing, what's your podcast wearing. Talking about style. Fashion comes and goes. You can buy something that... Last the season and you're groovy in it or you love it and then it's gone. Or you can make investment purchases that last years and years and years and years, which is something that I recommend. Not frivolous with clothing money, not a slave to fashion, but style is forever. And you either have it or you don't. And money or lack thereof will not affect your style. It will only augment it or detract from it. Now, this week, I can't wait to wear out, I wore them in the house, my Burberry zebra ink print shorts. Yes, you heard it. Seems to be an animal theme this week. You know, octopuses, octopi, things, octopuses, come on, Bobby, octopi, things like that. Um, zebras, zebras, for those of you that mispronounce it. Well, these zebra print ink pants were personally designed by Ricardo Tichy, who is the new creative director at Burberry. 
and has been for a couple of years. He is a graduate of the Central St. Martin School in London, and he got the position about 24 months ago over some pretty big names, John Galliano, who's creative director at Maison Margiela, Kim Jones, former men's creative director at Louis Vuitton, Phoebe Philo, artistic director at Celine, Stuart Viveres, uh, creative director at Coach. I mean, when Ricardo Tisci joined Burberry, this was a hu- huge coup. And if you follow the business end of it, uh, it's turned Burberry into the bi- biggest British luxury fashion house on the planet and has just made them a real force, um, keeping up a lot of British tradition, but with tremendous innovation. And uh, Mr. Tishi is a big fan of zebras. And Richard, my good digital friend at Burberry Customer Service, um, told me in uh, an email that the watercolor print cotton draw card shorts were personally designed by Ricardo uh, and the watercolor splashes himself, which were inspired by zebras and his love of animals. And I think that's absolutely amazing. And by the way, if you guys just like to watch really cool things, you can go on the Burberry.com and see their recent fashion show, their live fashion show, which was filmed in like a forest. Speaking of forests, you know, like in a sea kelp forest, like in my octopus's teacher, The show was streamed live on social media platform Twitch last week, and uh, it was streamed live from a remote British forest and inspired by the British outdoors, nature, freedom, and open spaces. And uh, quoting Richard, it's a tremendously cool show that's different than anything they've presented in in the past. And you don't have to be a fashion fan, but if you're a cinephile, if you love film and creativity, and the souvenir of the experience, which is all clothing is. When you go to Disneyland and you get the the ears, you know, embroidered with your kid's name on it, give it to your kid, it's giving him or her a souvenir of the experience. When you go to a Dodger game and, uh, you know, you get a, a Dodger hat, it's a souvenir of the experience. And really all runway shows are is dreams, painted, you know, paintings that come true. As Van Gogh said, I dream my painting, I paint my dream. It's all I am as a filmmaker. I have a dream. I put it on paper, make a script, and hope that script comes to fruition as as a film um, with the help or not with the help of partners who usually uh, could go on. I think I'll have to have a segment about how partners destroy dreams in a future podcast. But to see clothing come to fruition on the runway and on models. Um, it's just quite very dreamy. You say, oh, I would look good in that, or I would look, you know, not so good in that, or that's really me, or that's a, a fashion dream that I have of my husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever like that. It's just, it's, a, it's another experience. It's another part of the art world we could not live without. And you think of all your favorite TV shows and movies, and you would never forget what your favorite leading man and leading woman and characters are wearing in it because clothing is such a part of our lives, art direction. So thank you. Shout out to Richard at Burberry um, for your input. And uh, those zebra shorts will be on the show notes. And if I could get one out of Melbourne, out of five Ks from the house, and if we could have a couple of days of warm weather and no rain, I'll be rocking those all throughout Bayside, Melbourne. And uh, if you thought my head was big last week, 
I'm pretty full of myself when I'm wearing those. I admit it. I admit it. It's okay. Celebrating my inner wanker. Now, one of the things great about clothing and travel and things like that is to go and stay in wonderful places, whether luxe or middle of the road or whatever, and enjoy the local fair and cities and attractions and things like that. But as I warned last week, a tsunami of hotel closures is coming, and it's already begun. One of my favorite hotels, uh, the Lux Rodeo Drive Hotel in Beverly Hills, just shut down citing the financial effects of the pandemic. And Hugo Martin, a staff writer for the LA Times, wrote a very incisive article. In fact, that that 86-room hotel for 27 years shared a city block many people know in, in LA with high-end outlets like Cartier and Harry Winston. And uh, <clears throat> they just notified their workers last week they're permanently closing operations. And um, the Lux Rodeo, Drive is the first high-end hotel in L.A. to go out of business because of the pandemic. But industry experts are pointing to an unusually high loan delinquency rate amongst hotel borrowers. That's a sign that closures are about to happen. Uh, Don Wise at Turnbull Capital Group, who's a commercial real estate expert and co-founder of the group, said, we know there's a tsunami. We know it's going to hit the beach. We just don't know. We don't know when. We know and anticipate many hotels won't survive, said Heather Rosman, executive director of the Hotel Association of L.A. Industry data shows one in four properties already are struggling to pay mortgages, risking foreclosure. They just got caught up in the bad timing of the global travel market, and uh, Rodeo Drive launched a full remodel just before the pandemic struck. High-end hotels are closing Everywhere, the Hilton Times Square Hotel in New York City, uh, 44 stories, went out of business this month. And Ashford Hospitality just turned over the keys to its newly purchased embassy suites in midtown Manhattan after the real estate investment trust fell behind on debt payments. The Chicago Palmer House Hilton Hotel, one of my old favorites, was sued by Wells Fargo last month after defaulting on a third of a billion dollar load loan. Now, nationwide, not clear how many are falling behind, but figures are available on hotel loans that have been bundled and sold to investors as commercial mortgage-backed securities and payments on almost 20% of these loans or more than 30 days late. And once a hotel is more than 30 days late on making a mortgage payment, the lender can file a notice of default on the loan and increase the interest rate by 5% until the payments are brought current. If after 90 days the lender hasn't brought the loan current, the lender can file a notice of sale, a sale that can take place 21 days after that 90-day notice. It's very, very sad. Um, and in fact, looking, we've been looking at the top of the, uh, the chain there. Let's go to the the bottom of the chain, the Lux Hotel, a formal hotel worker, Oscar Malara, 60 years old, had been working at the Lux Rodeo Drive for 39 years, starting before the Harkham family took over the property. This guy began his career as a dishwasher, worked his way up to cook. The hotel had been closed since March when the pandemic, pandemic struck, but Malara and his co-workers held out hope that it, like other hotels, 
in the LA area would eventually would eventually reopen and hire them. Over the years, his co-workers had become his second family, he said, and the $22 an hour he earned was enough to pay his bills and send money to his sister in El Salvador to help her make ends meet. Then the letter from Harkham arrived saying it was over. Quote, when you work most of your life for a place and it closes, it's just not fair, Malara said. And no, it isn't. Very, very sad. And yeah, I'm lamenting because my wife and I can't travel anywhere. And that really gives me the shits. Can't even travel anywhere in our own city. But uh, the human cost of businesses being closed, the human cost to me outweighs the cost of the lives, most of which we're probably going to pass relatively soon anyway. But that's a discussion we'll be having for the rest of our lives and maybe longer. Who knows? Now, on that note, I'm going to bait you with some amazing goodness for next week, where our guest will be Antonio Sabato Jr., who was the star of General Hospital for several years in the uh, U.S. He played Jagger Cates in the famous U.S. Soap and star of the big hit and several other amazing films. Super mensch of a guy who came here from uh, overseas, came here, actually came to the U.S. from overseas and carved out a hell of a career until he came out for President Trump and uh, suddenly... Everything dried up in 10 seconds in L.A., showing the absolute hypocrisy of liberal Hollywood uh, not selecting someone who wanted to speak their mind on their politics and uh, who um, was forced to leave Hollywood and go to Florida and start a new life and is uh, just about to break some big bones in Hollywood and elsewhere with his his new plans and new studio. Uh, and he's just going to tell it like it is. So we've got an amazing interview with him. And I think you'll, uh, the human side of Hollywood and the hypocrisy and talent versus ethics and morals and beliefs. So uh, stay tuned for that. Have a fantastic week and uh, be epic. <laughs>